G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. It is an undeniable thing that throughout history, the people of Israel have suffered dreadfully at the hands of their enemies. And as you are wondering if anti-Semitism is getting worse today, well, there are some signs that indicate that there is a serious challenge ahead for the Jewish people. And especially as nations around the world look at how they identify with the history of Israel. Alex Rifkin is Public Affairs Director with the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. And he's highlighted some significant developments that are symptoms of a growing anti-Israel agenda. Welcome along to 2020 to you, Alex. Thank you. Alex, just recently you've had published in The Spectator an article in which you're drawing attention to recent events and a number of those things that are highlighted in your article come in the lead up to a day when uh, when the Holocaust is remembered, Remembrance Day, and that was just late last month in January. What are the key incidents that you're making reference to? There were some very curious events right in the lead up to Holocaust Remembrance Day, which falls each year on the anniversary date of the liberation of the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp. And uh, the first was uh, a speech, a, a two-hour tirade by Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, which was very in keeping with his character, uh, in which he made some remarks about the Holocaust. Now, Abbas has previously, he has previous form in Holocaust denial and Holocaust revisionism, on this occasion, he did admit that six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, which was a first for him. But he, he augmented those comments by saying that those Jews chose to die in Europe rather than immigrating to Israel. So that was his way of showing his utter disdain and contempt for the Jewish state. Um, and also, again, a, a pretty classless act of revisionism. Um, of course, the Jews that were annihilated in Europe were unable to emigrate. They were unable to get out. They were caught by the speed of the German advance. There was also uh, the British White Paper, which limited severely Jewish emigration out of Europe into Palestine. Um, so his, his comments are both historically false and fraudulent, but they also show a real bad faith on his part, and that's really indicative of his leadership and his position. Alex, uh, before we move on to yeah. some of the other issues you've tackled, uh, just uh, uh, let's reflect on this one for just a few moments. Mahmoud sure. Abbas, uh, Palestinian leader, and the issue really here, it's not that it's new that he has been into this revisionism and reviewing the history of the past and, and in the words that you've used, mutilated the history. Uh, but the issue here is whether the world's media is picking up on what he's saying or whether they're actually giving reference to the truth. Uh, this is the issue, isn't it, when it comes to the deception that seems to be going on uh, and the anti-Israel agenda that uh, appears to be growing around the world. You're quite right. It's an excellent point because Abbas's comments about Israel being a, a colonial project, his remarks about the Holocaust, 
were virtually ignored and unreported outside of Israel. So there was some coverage of his speech, but it focused on uh, his condemnation of Donald Trump and the Jerusalem announcement and so forth. And this is part of a broader agenda in the Western media to basically sanitize the Palestinian narrative and some of their more extreme remarks. When we hear uh, blatantly anti-Semitic remarks made by Palestinian leaders or members of the public interviewed in the Palestinian press, invariably they're reported as criticisms of Zionism or Israel, when in fact they're a deep-seated hatred of the Jewish people. So, as you rightly point out, this is part of a broader agenda, and the media certainly is one of those key battlegrounds. So that would be the least subtle one that you're drawing attention to. In fact, that's more like a sledgehammer uh, in the anti-Semitic stance of Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, Other things are a little more subtle. The Polish government is changing their law, criminalising public discussion of Poland's role in the Holocaust. How does that story look to you? It looks deeply disturbing, and it's part of a long-term trend in Poland of attempting to suppress historical examination of the role that the Polish state and the Polish people played in the annihilation of three million Polish Jews during the Holocaust. We've seen uh, noted historians who have uncovered uh, insurmountable, clear evidence of Polish collaboration. They've been hounded, they've been threatened with lawsuits, and this is really the, the latest step, and that is to criminalize public discussion of the role of the Polish nation and the state in the Holocaust. And this really is about trying to build or revive a national tradition of heroism and righteousness. Um, And the stories of what happened in places like Zhedbavni, where 340 Jews were crammed into a barn and burnt alive by their Polish neighbors, things like this really fly in the face of these heroic traditions that nationalist politicians are trying to cultivate. And this is why they're trying to suppress this with the law. But the truth has a power and a force that can't be suppressed. Um, And fortunately, there are historians that are examining this issue and bringing the truth to light. And the subtlety here is that the Poles were victims themselves of Nazi occupation, but it appears to be they want to elevate their own victimhood above the victimhood of the Jews and millions of Jews who died in the Holocaust. Is that a a, a fair enough way of characterising what's happened there? It is, it is. And the Poles were certainly victims of Nazi Germany. That can't be questioned. They were invaded and conquered by an enemy that viewed them as racially inferior. Uh, they were also abused horribly by, on their other front, by the Soviet Union. There was the massacre of 22,000 officers and members of the intelligentsia at Katyn Forest. There were similar shootings in other places as well. Uh, Poles really suffered tremendously during the war. But while that is a fact and that needs to be known, and, and it is really, um, what happened in the Holocaust, how... Three million of their Jewish neighbors, three million Jewish citizens of Poland were massacred uh, in this way. That also needs to be known and understood. And we can't speak about the role of Poles as victims, the role of Poles as being righteous among the nations, without also talking about the role of Poles as enablers and collaborators. It draws attention, doesn't it, to the subtlety of how anti-Semitism rises. There's a third issue that you've covered in your article in The Spectator, and that is to do with a letter that was written by the Saudis to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And on the face of it, it looks like a nice letter, but what's so sinister about that letter? 
Well, the truth is we don't know if it's sinister. And as you said, on the face of it, it's really a watershed moment potentially in relations between the Jewish people and the Islamic world. So the letter was authored by a non-governmental organization, but with very close links to the Saudi regime. It was sent to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and it basically spoke about the unparalleled horror that was the Holocaust and that no reasonable person can deny what happened. And it's the sort of language that really stood in sharp contrast to what was happening in Poland and also the remarks of Mahmoud Abbas. But viewed in a broader context, there might be something cynical and sinister about this. So lately we've seen this real charm offensive by Qatar, for example, trying to woo American Jews, people like uh, Mort Klein of the Zionist Organization of America, Malcolm Honline, Alan Dershowitz have all gone to Qatar to see the place for themselves and have come back with quite complementary views of the regime in the country. Uh, and Saudi Arabia is at the moment in, in a regional rivalry with Qatar, and this might be its way of appealing to American Jewry as part of what may be a, an anti-Semitic mindset that thinks that if you manage to sway American Jews, you can therefore influence the press and the government. So this is speculation, frankly. So I think we need to judge the letter on, it, on its merits and what it says, and really it's a remarkable letter. But nothing really happens in the Middle East without some subtext or broader context, and that's something we need to be awake to as well. So that letter looks very suspicious because it gives great sympathy to the victims of the Holocaust, and that flies against what most of those Muslims in Saudi Arabia would ordinarily think about the Jews. Let's talk about this in the broader context of the idea that there is an anti-Israel agenda and it goes around the world. PR companies, people who are involved in public relations on every side are working in overdrive, aren't they, to get their side of the story out. But it does appear that the, the Jewish side of the story seems to get left behind. It's true. It's true. And it seems that Israel is, is facing what often feels like an insurmountable attack in Western governments, in forums of influence, whether it be the United Nations, trade unions, university campuses, social media, the traditional press. And this really is, as I've spoken about in my book, the third tier in the war to eradicate the Jewish state. So we've seen from the creation of the State of Israel, or the rebirth in 1948, we saw conventional warfare as the means of eradicating the country, of destroying the state. And when that failed, we saw a shift to terrorism, uh, both launched within Israel's borders and outside. Things like the Munich Olympics stand out as particularly glaring examples of international terrorism. And the aim of that is to divide the Israeli society um, and also weaken support for it in the West. And when that failed as well to... Uh, to fracture and, and ultimately disband the Jewish state, we've seen a third tier, a third wave in this political war unleashed. And that is political warfare, which seeks to appropriate and co-opt Western governments, organs of civil society, to gradually turn public opinion and the opinion of policymakers against Israel, sever Western support for the Jewish state until the state crumbles in that way. And this is why we see this concerted, coordinated effort across civil society and across government. And it's incredibly difficult to fight because it happens on so many fronts. Uh, it's unrelenting. But really, even though this seems like 
something that's non-violent or, or peacefully orientated, the same destructive motives are there. And all people of goodwill need to stand up and fight this. Alex, I should mention uh, you're the author of a book called The Anti-Israel Agenda, Inside the Political War on the Jewish State. Uh, from where you stand, uh, this political war is one that really has to be fought. Uh, you can't afford to lose it, can you? No, no, because the survival of the Jewish state is at stake and nothing less than that. And um, as I said, while previously Israel has faced perhaps more seemingly urgent or direct challenges through warfare and terrorism, this political war ultimately seeks to do the exact same thing, which is to isolate and cripple the state until it can no longer defend its interests or its people. And, but the good news about this war is that it's eminently winnable. Uh, it's being waged not in faraway lands and, and distant battlegrounds, but on the campuses that we or our children may attend, in the news media we consume, every form, every key institution of society. And the way to fight this, the way to overcome this, is by participation, by building support in these institutions and gradually turning public opinion back into Israel's favour. Well, Alex Rifkin, thank you so much for taking some time to share your side of the story on these issues. Uh, Alex is Public Affairs Director with the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. His article has been published in The Spectator on the Polish Holocaust Law, Abbas's Revisionism and a Saudi Letter. Also draw attention to Alex Rifkin as the author of a book called The Anti-Israel Agenda, Inside the Political War on the Jewish State. I imagine people can get a hold of that if they're looking for it online uh, or if you're in touch with the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. Alex, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us today on 2020. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.